So I'll conclude the story with Luke 20, verse 16, 27 through 31, the end of this story. He said then, the rich man said to Abraham, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, that Lazarus may warn them, so they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. That's the end of the story. <laughs> they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Wow, right? Luke wrote this six or seven decades or so after Jesus died. And his followers believed that he, in fact, did rise from the dead. And some of the Christians are saying, look, Christianity must be true. Jesus rose from the dead. But Luke says, no, that doesn't matter. The truth of Jesus' teaching has nothing to do with miracles. Believe it because it is true, not because he rose from the dead. Did, you teach, did they teach you this verse, Luke 16, 31, in Sunday school? Or did they skip right over that one? <laughs> Here's my reading of the end of this story. Luke is saying, I've just told you that the rich man goes to hell, the poor man is fed, the water of heaven, the beggar man is satiated, and the thief is rewarded as long as he steals from the rich and gives it away. But if you, dear reader, implies Luke, if you are generous because you want to be rewarded in heaven or gather a claim in this world, then no. Luke isn't making this story up from nowhere, by the way. It is based on an old Egyptian folktale. This is a folktale that is at least now 3,000 years old. It is a common story, a common reminder. Wealth doesn't make you a good person and poverty doesn't make you a bad person. Part of Jesus' teaching is about the inward life, the kingdom of heaven is in you, and that it matters what is in your heart. You sin, he says in other places, not just if you harm another, but if you wish to. I don't know about that, by the way. I think sometimes we think things that we would not do. And it is ethical wisdom to restrain our worst impulses and thinking something and doing something are different. But the point is here that you should be generous for the right reasons. Because of your recognition of common humanity. Because you see another suffer and love them and wish them a full belly. Because you have placed the love of justice and mercy at the center of your heart and thus have no room for the love of money power, or fame. If you have gotten rich through honest means, through hard work and fair practice and a whole lot of luck, and let's be honest, if you've gotten rich, it's a whole lot of luck, then fine, good. Use that in service to goodness, justice, and mercy. But do not think it makes you better or more holy. In fact, this story reminds us that wealth, if you are not very careful, will open a great chasm between you and true happiness. This is the authentic message of Jesus, preached over and over again. It is individual, about the individual heart, but it is also social. 
Like all Jewish prophets, Jesus is deeply concerned with social injustice, how society treats the most vulnerable. Jewish prophets refer, they have a catchphrase for the most vulnerable, widows, orphans, and refugees. That's what they describe over and over again, widows, orphans, and refugees. How society treats them indicates whether or not society is just, whether it is aligned with a holy. And both the Roman Empire, which Judea is part of, and the ruling class of Judea have created a society, Jesus says at the time, as Isaiah did before him and others, in which the poor, the vulnerable, and the lonely suffer greatly. Thus, society is separated from the holy and must repent. Forswear thy foolish ways and repent. So how are we doing? Not so great. Not so great. When refugee children are housed in cages, we're not doing so great. That's part of it. One part of it, if you're poor, a single unexpected bill will devastate you. In Illinois, where many of us live, our system of, to support children that the state is responsible for is a total disaster, underfunded for decades, and little sense of urgency to fix it. Nationwide, extreme pockets of generational poverty persist, caused by segregation and racism and economic exploitation, and everything from roads to schools to medical care to jobs to Grocery stores is worse, if not non-existent, in places where few people have money. The great chasm is wide open. Economic inequality is its highest point since the Great Depression. This is the Gini Index. It measures economic inequality, and you see there at the top of the chart, highest since 1930. The market's up. Some are doing great. But wage increases for folks in the lower part of the income spectrum are eaten up by housing costs and childcare and medical and college costs. The great chasm is wide open. The median wealthy household, and wealthy here means in this case that you make over $200,000 a year or you have over a million dollars in assets. The wealthy median household gives away about 3.4% of their income. Some give away a lot more the average is about three times that. And when you have a big gap between the average and the median, it means there are a few who are giving away a lot of money and many giving away very little. The three, they study this, of course, they study this. The three biggest factors in whether or not a household is generous are this. First, they're married. Married people give away a lot more money. Uh, the guess is that they encourage each other to do so and are more financially stable. You have more that you can count on so you can be more generous easily. Second, they are religious. But note this. Religious people don't just give more money to religious institutions, to their churches and temples and synagogues. No, religious people are much more likely to give to secular institutions than people who never go to church are. Religious people give more to secular institutions than people who don't go to church. And third, and this is one I found particularly fascinating and relevant today. The third is that they live in more economically diverse areas. So here's a paragraph from the magazine Philanthropy Roundtable. Listen closely. Interestingly, when rich people live in separate enclaves, they are not as generous as when they live interspersed in normal communities. The How America Gives study 
showed that when households earning $200,000 a year or more make up more than 40% of the residents of a particular zip code, they give just 2.8% of their discretionary income to charity. If they live in more mixed neighborhoods and towns, though, they give an average closer to 5%. Did you catch that? Rich folks who live in mixed income zip codes give almost twice as much on average to charity as rich folks who don't. Almost twice as much. The great chasm, indeed. There is no zip code in Rockford that would qualify, and I don't think even in Rockton, by the way, for more than 40% have more than $200,000 in income. So I assume any and all of you who have great wealth are more than twice as generous as those stingy hoarders in suburban San Francisco and Boston. <laughs> oh, keep it up. People in Boston were so mad when this study came out that showed that their town was one of the least generous in the United States. And remember, a lot of Unitarians in Boston. They were so mad that it showed them among the least charitable that they produced their own numbers, which accounted for the cost of housing and other things. This, friends, is what we call missing the point. <laughs> what is the point? Many individuals do give generously. They're more likely to do so because of their circles of connection, their faith, their friendships, their neighborhoods, when they are embedded in their communities, when there are bridges between us that cross those chasms. This isn't just true for rich folks, by the way. Folks with less money, both middle class folks and folks who are on working class, also give more generously when they are connected to their neighbors and to communities of faith and service. The more connected you are, the more generous you are. And not just money, time, volunteering, and most importantly, that generosity of the heart. Seen in this way, the decline in generosity is a symptom of our society's greatest challenge, the epidemic of loneliness. When a great chasm separates us from others, and when the idolatry of individualism convinces us that we are all that is necessary and we are fully sufficient for our own happiness, then generosity falls away. And what is true for some people has become true for society as a whole. The false idol of the prosperity gospel, the myth of self-reliance, the cult of masculinity and toxicity of certain versions of whiteness all brewed together in a foul mix of militarism and ego has warped our sense of responsibility to each other. Everything has to be means-tested and indexed and work required and poverty-shamed. We think that if you're not a hard-working, productive worker, then you don't matter. But everybody matters. Everybody matters. And all people deserve to live with dignity, each and every one of them. The fountain flows for everyone. This system that we live in, it is unbiblical, if that matters to you. It is unbiblical. It is unjust. It is inhumane. It produces stress and anxiety, Instead of cooperation and joy, we run the rat race, but the cheese is poisoned. A society that was generous and expansive and connected would look out for those most vulnerable, widows, orphans, and refugees. Among them, it would subsidize childcare so families could afford to be together. 
It would make sure folks had the child care, the health care that they needed. It would feed the hungry and clothe the naked and house the homeless. It would be a place where if you fell down, you would not fall away. The fountain would flow for everyone. We've been sold a bill of goods. God forbid you be the poor man or the beggar man. Don't let that be your fate. Look out. No, strive to be the rich man. Be the rich man. But no, no. We are to be the thief. The manager is given oversight over the wealth, and finally he realized that with dishonest wealth, you just have to give it away. Be the little girl, taking twice as much rice each day until all people eat their fill. The manager has a ledger and a pen. That's his tool to chip away at the system of exploitation and greed, which is ruining our lives. So what are your tools? What are your tools? You have cash? Okay, you know what to do. You have a vote? Most of us do. Cast it. You have a voice? Raise it. You have a song? Sing it. You have a bell? Is it a bell of freedom? Ring it. You have a hammer? A hammer of justice, you say. Ah, excellent. That will come in handy. Let's use it. Use all of our gifts, whatever they are, to build a life in a world where we are extravagantly generous, full of love and hope and grace all over this world. Won't you rise in body or in spirit?
I'll extinguish our chalice, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These things we carry with us until we are together again. Why do I do that? I invite you to join hands with one another, or if you'd rather not be touched, place your hands on your shoulder. May the spirit of generosity and love be with us. May the spirit of justice and mercy and compassion be with us as we go from this place with a song, a hammer, and a bell in our heart to use it for good so that all people might thrive with full bellies and warm hearts. Go in peace. We'll sing together our closing blessing. Mm -hmm.